Hi friends, before we jump into today's episode, I want to thank you for choosing to listen to the surprising rebirth of Belief in God. We'll soon be celebrating 500,000 downloads since launch and winning a Zenga prize for podcast journalism. If you're enjoying the series and you'd like to help me reach even more people with thinking faith, can I encourage you to support this podcast? Becoming a silver supporter means you get early access to episodes and bonus content, Gold supporters also get signed books and a monthly catch-up with me on Zoom, if you'd like it. The links to support are with the show notes or visit justinbriley.com. Enjoy today's episode. My understanding of Jesus is not someone who rides in with tanks to destroy a civilizational enemy. That was what was expected, and that was why he was so confusing (laughs) to people. I see a precious soul made in God's image who, in a very dark time, has opened herself up and and found something in the scriptures and found something in the Jesus movements that that is making a real difference in her life. I just have a little cry here. Oh, the power of testimony, right? Hello and welcome to a bonus edition of the Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God podcast as we sort of take a break between our last act on the new conversation on God and just before we begin our next act on how we've been shaped by the Christian story. Today I'm bringing you a conversation on the remarkable story of Ayan Hersey Ali who only last month announced that she had embraced Christianity, having been a leading voice of the new atheists. And I'm going to be exploring Ian's story with two guests, Elizabeth Oldfield and Glenn Scrivener. Elizabeth is the host of The Sacred, a podcast from Theos about our deepest values and the stories that shape us. And she has loads of interesting and diverse guests, one of my favourite podcasts. Do go and check it out. And Elizabeth's new book, Fully Alive, will also be published next year. Glenn is the director of Speak Life and author of The Air We Breathe, How We All Came to Believe in Freedom, Kindness, Progress and Equality, and has also recently been co-hosting a new podcast, the Post-Christianity Podcast with Andrew Wilson. Covers a lot of similar issues, actually, to this podcast, another one you want to check out. As I say, today we'll be discussing what Ayan Hersey Ali's announcement means, setting it within the context of a number of secular intellectuals speaking very warmly these days about the value of Christian belief and culture. And also we'll be looking at some of the criticisms that uh, Hersey Ali has received from some internet atheists, um, whether her conversion is more about protecting civilization than a personal encounter with Christ, for instance. But we'll get into all that as we play some clips. Um, Elizabeth and Glenn, thank you for joining me. Perhaps starting with you, Elizabeth, um, you won't be completely unfamiliar to listeners of this podcast. We've been featuring some of our recent conversations on the documentary style episodes of the podcast. But tell us about The Sacred, first of all, and and the new book you're working on as well. Thank you so much. It's really lovely to be here. I host a podcast called The Sacred, and it started in 2017 as a response to to that moment, I'm sure you remember the way that 2016 felt like a fork in the road for how we treated each other, how we talked about each other, how hopeful we were able to feel about our common life and how we could live together even when we're very different. 
And so I talk to people from a wide range of political, metaphysical, and as any other perspective you can think of, and really try not to argue with anyone, not to approach that kind of adversarial posture that we often have when we're talking across divides in public, but just with curiosity and empathy and openness, seek to understand them. It um, starts with the question, what is sacred to you? And that's in a very broad sense and guests can take it in whatever direction they want. But it almost always means that it levers open some space for some deep reflection on values and what we actually think a good life is, which mm. is my favorite thing to do. Fantastic. And the book, and, and, and the book yes, Fully Alive. Yes. Tell us about that. Yeah, so that's out in May 2024. Uh, the subtitle is Tending to the Soul in Turbulent Times. And I'm really trying to make a case for the value of theological wisdom for those outside the church. I uh, feel like uh, those of us who are Christians have inherited this treasure box, but it is so dusty. And the church, and I include myself in this, have often failed to communicate what is in there and how humane and liberatory and um, just wise, psychologically acute, many of these practices and ideas and themes and communities are, even for those who don't know what they think about the God bit. And so I'm very much starting from what what's the wisdom here that you might need to hear, even if you would never walk into a church. Fantastic. So looking forward to the conversation today, Elizabeth, and I'll make sure there's a link, of course, to where you can find out the things uh, that Elizabeth has been mentioning there. Uh, Glenn, uh, tell us about Speak Life, for those who don't know, and about your new 321 course as well. Great. Well, thank you for having me on, Justin. Um, so Speak Life uh, is uh, an evangelistic ministry, and we want to make much of Jesus, and we, we do that uh, in a number of different ways through speaking and writing and uh, in many ways online as well. And so we're really trying to uh, get into Christians' hands a kind of a shareable faith resources that, uh, that makes sense in the digital age. And 321 is at the forefront of that. That's sort of a gospel presentation I've been working on for about 13 years, uh, a way of explaining the threeness of God, the two-ness of the world, and the oneness of you. And if people don't know what those numbers refer to, they can go to 321course.com and, and figure out uh, Jesus' vision for life. It's God, the world, and you, according to Jesus. And we hope that it's a way that kind of makes sense in a digital age because the way that people search for God is the way that people search for everything, which means Google and it means YouTube and it means binging Netflix documentaries and it means long form podcasts and it means audible books. And um, the way that people are searching after God um, needs to make sense in a digital age. And we're really trying to do that. And so people can check out 321course.com and, and see how we do it. Yeah. And as I say, I've been enjoying the the new podcast as well with Andrew Wilson, Post Christianity. Feel like feel like we're tracking in various ways, um, all three of us in, in many ways on, on some of these things. And and it just feels like there's a real interesting story to be told in, in all kinds of different ways about this this yeah, the the where we are in a post Christian world, what some of the challenges are, but also what some of the opportunities are. That that feels like, you know, what what your new podcast is about, Glenn. Yeah, it's sort of putting a pin in the map and, and saying, where are we in this cultural moment and looking at that in historical perspective. And I just have learned so much from Andrew Wilson, whose uh, who's new book, Remaking the World, kind of focuses in on 1776 as this sort of uh, watershed moment in history, in, in the history of post-Christianity. And uh, yeah, I, I learned so much from doing the podcast and lots of other people seem to be enjoying it. So yeah. Yeah, well, links again to all of those things uh, from today's show. 
Uh, we're going to be playing in some clips in our conversation about Ayan Hirsi Ali today. Um, we did, of course, well, I did reach out to Ayan Hirsi Ali, but as you can imagine, she's inundated with media requests at the moment, having uh, put out this article about her embrace of Christianity, which went viral um, a month or two back. Um, so we hope to bring her on the show at some point to, to talk about it in person. But uh, but for the moment, uh, we're going to be talking about it ourselves with the help of some clips from Ian and others. Um, first, we're going to play a clip in actually from the recent ARC conference. Uh, ARC stands for the Alliance of Responsible Citizens, took place in London recently. Um, it was hosted by Jordan Peterson. Um, and one of the sessions was an onstage discussion, uh, panel discussion featuring Ian Hersey Ali. Uh, just before we play this, I wonder, Elizabeth, if you could give us a very potted idea of what you think ARC is um, for those who perhaps haven't come across it before. <laughs> Hmm. Honestly, Justin, I'm not sure I can. I think I'm still trying to get a handle on what it is. And it's so new. I always feel like trying to uh, trying to understand something when it's just out of the gate is, is yes. an impatient thing to do. So I think what it is, is emerging. But the themes that I'm hearing are about... Um, well, Philippa Stroud, I think's opening talk really set out the stage about a different story. What does it mean to tell a story about what's possible? What does it mean to tell a story that feels hopeful, that could possibly bring people together? So it's a really um, nervous of apocalyptic um, language, which I think is interesting theologically. Mm -hmm. And from Jordan Peterson, you hear a slightly different tone. And this is the this is the thing that makes ARC a little bit hard to get hold of. It's a coalition, which is wonderful. So you get different voices, but the different voices really emphasize quite different things. Um, and from Jordan Peterson, I'm hearing much more uh, concern about the climate movement. And I'm hearing, uh, yeah, maybe maybe I'll put it there. That's that's the emphasis yeah, that um, yeah. that I'm perhaps most interested in with him. Well, we might dive into that a, a bit more later on, um, as time allows. Um, just before we hear this clip as well, Glenn, for those who perhaps aren't particularly familiar with Ian Hersey Alley's story, do you want to give a very potted history of, of where she's been up to now? Uh, so Somali born, uh, grew up mainly in Kenya. Um, I think the early Islam that she experienced was, was not radical, but then... Um, kind of became radicalized as a as a teenager she left uh though uh from africa and went to the netherlands to escape an arranged marriage uh first of all she met um some very helpful christians and um but she studied in the netherlands and was surrounded by lots of secular voices and and um deconverted from islam she did a film with theo van gogh um uh, about sort of Islam and its treatment of women. Uh, he was actually killed in the streets by uh, an Islamist and uh, kind of pinned to his body was a note saying that Ayan was next. She, uh, she had actually been a, a, a politician in the Netherlands. She then fled to the US and uh, she has always um, kind of kept that sense of deconverting from Islam uh, she became very good friends with Christopher Hitchens, for instance, and uh, a little known fact is that uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, of the atheist apocalypse, that is, um, Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and Daniel Dennett and and who have I forgotten? Um, Hitchens. And Hitchens himself um, yes. had a filming to do that that kind of documentary video, and Ion was meant to be the fifth uh, figure, uh, but um, 
was not able to make that that filming. So she was very close to that movement of the new atheism. Um, she wrote a, a book about that called Infidel and, and wrote about how she had sort of deconverted from Islam and had become an atheist, really. And so therefore, what she said at, at ARC was really making waves. Mm. Well, let's watch what she said. This sort of prefigured, really, her then later announcement of effectively saying she had converted to Christianity. But let's see what she said. Just before we jump into the rest of today's show, one of the voices you'll hear on this podcast is friend of the show, Glenn Scrivener, a brilliant Christian communicator. Glenn has recently put together an online course called 321. It's an introduction to Christianity that's imaginative, stimulating and assumes no prior knowledge. If you've been thinking about exploring faith for yourself or if you want something to share with your friends, 321 is just the thing. Glenn presents eight video-led sessions which are beautifully shot and animated. I found it a really engaging and practical way of connecting the big ideas in this podcast to our everyday life. I'm already thinking of people I can share it with. See for yourself at 321course.com slash JB. It's completely free. Just start a free account with your email and a password and you're in. There's no spam, no hidden costs. Go to 321course.com slash JB and discover life according to Jesus. I am, maybe I'll close with you, if, if you don't mind. And so you, early in your life, relatively early in your life, you moved away from a, um, a totalizing religious view of the world. And I don't exactly know into what you then moved, whether that was a secular humanism, but what I'm hearing from you now and, and I, I believe this is also the case with your husband, is that you, you have come to, to a new understanding of the existence of the transcendent per se and also of your relationship with it. Now, first of all, do I have that right? And second of all, like, is, that, is that the movement that you have made? And if so, why? So I rebelled against a transcendent, a concept of God, of a God that now manifests itself in, you know, the Iranian regime, um, Hamas, ISIS. That was the God I grew up with. That was the story that I grew up with. I rebelled against that. And then when I uh, was bold enough to say, and this was in the Netherlands, um, I, I don't want any of that. I didn't convert to Christianity. I didn't convert to another religion or another God. I carried with me this idea. Uh, the, you know, the three-letter word of God stands just for evil. And my best friends became Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins. These are people I still love and adore. Um, and I think over time, I'm now 53, and so when I made this, when I was in this state of rebellion, it started for me when I was 32 years old. Over time, I've come to realize, and I wish Christopher was alive today mm. to comment on what we are going through, was we were actually having a conversation about, in my view, the wrong conversation, does God exist? You know, it was the world built in six days. Uh, do we believe in fairy tales? And that was the wrong conversation to have. The right conversation to have, as I said earlier, was to compare what we as human beings, the transcendent that we have imagined and developed over centuries. 
And so now I can say I am proudly of the Judeo-Christian religion without having to waste your time about, do I really think that the world was built in six days? Do I really believe every word in the Bible? No, but I do believe that that Judeo-Christian tradition and what it has brought forth is, those are the values that I aspire to, the values by which I live. I was called a Christian by Roger, Cru Roger Scruton in 2008, and I said, Roger, no, I'm not a Christian. And he said, but you act like a Christian, and you behave like a Christian, therefore you are a Christian. And I think that is, that's exactly what I would like to say to Richard Dawkins. It's, you act like, you, I've been to, you know, calling music with him, which he enjoys very much. And he's one of the most Christian people I know. And so I think we've been having this, uh, we've been having this uh, time-wasting debates. And, you know, you grow up, I matured, here I am. But what I, the quotes that you just had about, uh, you know, Western civilization is a cut flower and cut flowers die. That is true. Cut flowers do die. But what we have in terms of Western civilization is a lot of seed packets. And I want to send you off with these seed packets, which you find in libraries, which you find in, you know, w wise people like you, like Roger Scruton, like all these other people that I mentioned. Uh, in statues, we have the remnants, the symbols of Western heritage and their seeds. And all we have to do, those of us who inherited it and enjoyed, is to go and seed them, grow them, nurture them, water them. And when they're attacked, fight for them. So there you are. And you can find the full video of that session with the links from today's show. Um, Perhaps start with you, Elizabeth. Um, how how did that session, Ian's story, sort of fit in with the art conference as a whole, would you say? I think it's really important to say I was not able to attend, and so I don't know that. Uh, my understanding is there was a lot of space for people of faith to speak, that various people whose day job is as preachers were given space on the main stage, and it makes a lot of sense for that movement um, given what they're saying about the kind of heritage of the West, to be broadly kind of warm and open towards Christians and Christian ideas, so I think it wouldn't have um, it wouldn't have landed to a room of people who were hostile uh, mm. to what she had to say. Would be my guess. Um, Glenn, you were there, I think. What, what were your thoughts when you saw that happening? Interestingly, they had a, a chat facility on the app and you could ask lots of questions of the panel and uh, none of the questions were actually um, taken up by Jordan Peterson, who was hosting. Um, the number one question was, why is nobody talking about God? And it was all in caps, caps locks. Um, <laughs> the, the attendees were incredibly Christian. In fact, when Jonathan Peugeot on the third day asked people, you know, do you consider yourself to be religious? Pretty much the whole room put its hand up. And then he asked, would you consider yourself to be atheist or secular? And about six hands went up and he made a joke. I'm taking names now. And, and we all chuckled <laughs> because it was in, there were a lot of Christians in the room and there were a lot of Christians on stage. On that uh, panel discussion, Ian was flanked by two Christians. So John Anderson, Deputy Prime Minister of, of Australia, uh, uh, former years, a Christian with a, with a big YouTube channel and Oz Guinness, obviously, 
uh, a Christian intellectual. Um, but it was Ayan who named Christianity first. She then kind of later adapted to the civilizational speak of the Judeo-Christian religion, which a lot of Christians have sort of picked up on and, and said, I'm not aware of the Judeo-Christian religion. Can you, can you show me their worship house? Like, what, <laughs> what, what is this Judeo-Christian religion? Um, and, and so she kind of flipped between, I think her instinct was actually to say Christianity. And she mentioned Tom Holland and, and sort of mm -hmm. spoke in those terms. But she was among a certain audience and wanted to speak sort of civilizationally. Um, about the moment that we're in. And so, yeah, I think the entire conference was called A Better Story. Um, and interestingly, on that panel, uh, the one person to actually name Christianity was um, Ayan Hirsi Ali as mm. something that embodied the better story. So actually, she came closer than the two out-and-out -out Christians at, yeah. at naming what that better story was, I'd say. Elizabeth, she obviously talked about she thinks they were having the wrong conversations, the new atheists, about God, you know, was the world created in six days? Can we trust the Bible? Um, what, what do you think about that, that approach that Ayan takes, that, that that's not the right conversation and the conversation she, has, she said we should have been having is essentially this kind of civilizational one about, you know, what, what, what do we do with the, the culture that Christianity or the Judeo-Christian heritage has gifted us? I would say I'm very sympathetic to her instincts because I do think a lot of the, the discourse around that time was just kind of wildly out of touch with uh, the lived experience of real believers and actually wildly out of touch with most people's real questions. Um, however, I don't want to sever uh, <laughs> the two things. I don't, I don't think that you can have the fruits uh, without the roots uh, for long, which also I think is what she is what she is saying um but i don't i'm struggling to get my head around her argument because it sounds like she's saying you know we have these fruits of uh the influence of christianity on the west the influence of christianity on this civilization which i want to defend and, and particularly in her article that's very much that's very like there is a war of civilizations there you know we are a civilization and we need to defend ourselves against these this other bad guy civilization hmm. Um, but whether you believe in God or not is not irrelevant yeah, <laughs> to that, yeah. that, uh, that, that, and I don't, I actually, I think there's more going on that, that I don't think she thinks that I think that she mm, is mm. hoping to kind of posture herself towards that. And would talk about herself as being on a journey towards, and it's going to church, which frankly is a great yeah. place to start mm, because you mm. immerse yourself in a different imaginative world. You change your formation and it's often the formation of our culture and our society that makes it easier or harder to conceive of the possibility of divine love. Um, but yeah. yes, I don't, I don't think it's either sign up to these beliefs or let's focus on the civilizational impacts. Mm, Those things mm. should not be divided. Glenn. I think the Tom Holland lens is very important to understand. She mentioned him at the art conference. She mentioned him again in the Unheard article that she uh, wrote. She mentioned him again at the Unheard interview that she gave and kept on calling him the wonderful Tom Holland and the marvelous Tom Holland. And I, I think once you understand the Dominion spectacles that she's looking through, I think that can help to understand what she means by the, these civilizational moments. I don't think, because I don't think Dominion is a book for culture warriors, it's not, it's not ammunition for the culture war, it is noticing 
that the culture war exists as an intramural dispute within the world that Christianity has built. And as she says in her unheard um, interview, she says, you know, not just classical liberalism, but socialism itself, you know, um, has been the fruit of Christian civilization. And the Enlightenment is a child of um, the Christian revolution. And what she's doing, I think, is noticing the values that she holds dear and pulling at the threads of those values and finding that they come from a very particular place and they don't actually come from just a a rights-based international order that just appeared out of nowhere in the 1700s. Um, But it it traces itself back to Jesus, right? And and so I think that lens is really important to, to look through when she mentions those civilizational moments. And I think it's also important to say, she is very used to a spiritual lens and looking at the world through spiritual lenses. And I think she takes seriously the religious motivations of a lot of geopolitical actors in a way that secular people find difficult because she's grown Mm. up within it. She understands Islam and a certain brand of Islam, that's for sure. And, And I think she also understands why when a Vladimir Putin, you know, considers Ukraine to be the possession of holy Russia. Um, I, th- I think, again, she has grown up being used to um, perceive geopolitical moments in spiritual terms too, in a, in a way that makes sense to most people on planet Earth, around the world and down through history, but doesn't make sense to a lot of you know, very secular people. And so where we see her just as, we might be tempted to see her just as making geopolitical points, mm when I think she's making much more spiritual points than we might imagine her Mm, to be. mm. Well, let's hear a little bit of the subsequent interview she had um, for Unheard, having published this viral article called Why I Am Now a Christian. um, She sat down with Freddie Sayers to talk about that in a bit more depth. Um, And she is repeating a little bit of what she already said at the ARC conference, but perhaps with a little bit more detail. So that secular liberalism that you fell in love with. Um, part of what you've been writing, not just in the most recent essay, but generally is that you're worried that it's not enough at a cultural level to compete with things like Islam or, or, or other cultures that still have very strong kind of calls to our soul. Is it that, that we should no longer believe in Western liberalism or is it is it an and-and question rather than either or? It's very much and-and. I think it's very much an acceptance of classical liberalism, but equally socialism, by the way. Um, these are products of this Judeo-Christian tradition. Um, there have been all of these debates within Christianity about tolerance and how much um, scientific inquiry and how far do we go that the human rights and where does that stop these are all children the enlightenment is a child of these judeo-christian traditions and i think you have to recognize that because otherwise you're literally cutting off the fruits um there was when i was at the uh, at arc uh, the alliance for responsible Um, citizenship, one of the participants um, said that Western civilization uh, risks becoming a cut flower. Um, And and, and I think that's what we don't want. We don't want to pretend, I don't want to pretend that 
all of these great things, the nation states, the universities, all of these economic advances, military advances, that somehow they just came floating along with the Enlightenment. I think the Enlightenment is a product of that. And Tom Holland, who also writes for Unhad, in his book Dominion, I think has done a very detailed historical background uh, without hiding the negative stuff, without hiding the bad stuff, um, where, you know, how these things are linked. And, and I think we've been asking the wrong question. Um, you know, can you prove that uh, there is a God? And I'm not sure that that's the right question. The question was asked, it was answered, uh, to the degree that you have people who uh, ended it, that debate with, let's agree to disagree. Even that stance in itself is very Christian and very Western. <laughs> That's not how it ends in Islam. Let's agree to disagree. You don't believe in, <laughs> so you don't believe in God, give me your head. Um, mm. um, and so that's, I think, where, that, and I think we sort of achieved that. And I think it's a pinnacle. And the next stage now is to preserve it for the next generation, to transmit it to the immigrants who have chosen with their feet to come here. So just some, some interesting additional detail there. And we will come to Ayan talking in the same interview about the personal journey that she's taken in this respect. But again, talking at that level, Elizabeth, about the sort of civilizational aspect of this, that um, the values we cherish, um, they they are like a cut flower um, and that if we don't nurture them, um, the, the fruit may wither without the roots and so on. Um, Glenn's described this as, as being Tom Holland pilled. Uh, I don't know if you agree with that phrase, Elizabeth. I mean, it feels like, you know, Tom Holland is potentially becoming, you know, the, the greatest evangelist of our generation in a kind of somewhat un, unasked for way. Um, well, what, what do you think about the Tom Holland effect here that, that Ian references? Yeah, I think um, what that book has done for a lot of people is remove a lot of intellectual barriers. And they aren't the ones that the new atheists were going after, right? He doesn't, he doesn't make a case for the kind of physics of creation or um, the in inerrancy of the Bible or uh, give us a response to this deep old open wound problem of suffering. He just says these ideas that we deep down, most of us long to live by that feel like the true North of our hearts are not from nowhere. <laughs> um, and that for so many people has been enough to make them look again, think again, cleared out enough imaginative space. And I think the key thing, I'm really glad we're going to go on to her speaking more personally because I've sitting with this. I, I don't, I think intellectual conversions are incredibly rare, incredibly rare, but for a particular, for a particular temperament and personality that they, they happen or, or they get that, that, that's what gets people to the brink. But I think that for almost all of us, it is the existential longing is the, mm. is the sense of homelessness <laughs> mm. um, and homesickness. And uh, my guess would be that 
for Ian, the same thing is happening for her, which has happened for lots of people, which is they needed someone to say, it's not stupid to explore this. It's a legitimate question to ask. And then mm. the rest just the, 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 the path ahead is open. Yeah. It, 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 when, when we spoke, um, and we, we played it out on a recent edition of the documentary podcast, um, you said that you've encountered a lot of people who have perhaps been on a similar-ish intellectual journey, but are still sort of fence-sitting, basically. They haven't yeah. felt like they can. So is, is that kind of the additional thing you need, a sort of responding, to, in a sense, to, to, to the spiritual longing rather than mm. just thinking, oh, well, I can kind of be a cultural Christian and appreciate all the values it has without really committing myself to this in a meaningful way? Yeah, I, I have to say, m much as, you know, it's not, it's really nice when people convert, right? It strokes our egos. It makes us feel like we're on the right team. It's really nice to be like, let's stick our flag in that person. Um, people who, who claim cultural Christianity and then never move anywhere from that make me really nervous. I think there is a, a land grab and a history of trying to use the power of the symbols and stories of Christianity as a cover for other projects which are often extremely exclusionary and do not seem to me to be particularly committed to neighbor love. Um, yeah, so I am nervous about cultural Christians. I'm nervous, uh, not honest ones, but ones who, who get there and stay there because I feel that saying I am a Christian, saying it to Richard Dawkins as she did, you're a Christian, when there has been no attempt to surrender or even orient your life to the path, the costly, difficult, like self-dying path <laughs> that Jesus calls us to, uh, that, that feels to me to be a dangerous mm. spot. And yes, that, that moment of ego death is what a lot of my psychedelics taking, psychotherapy keen friends in the sort of progressive realm, that, that language makes sense to them. That a moment mm. of ego death where you say, I am not God, mm. but someone else might be. And I want to be in relationship with them. If that doesn't happen, then I, I, I think we need to be careful about saying that's Christianity. Glenn? Yeah, sure. I, I, mean, I wouldn't say that's uh, Christianity in its truest sense at all. Um, but I, I, again, I think through the Tom Holland lenses, that there is some gain to be made by saying whatever kind of atheist Richard Dawkins is, he's a very Christian atheist. Um, um, and there, there are certain kinds of Anglican atheists and there are certain kind of Baptist atheists and there are certain kinds of, you know, American fundamentalist atheists. And, <laughs> and you can you can map Christian denominations onto various forms of atheism, for instance, because we cannot escape, um, the, the Christian heritage. I think one other thing I'd say about Ayan talking in geopolitical terms, and, and she does talk in more existential terms and we'll get to that, but. I think for a public intellectual who's used to thinking geopolitically, I think she's painting on a kind of a, a global historical canvas, this, a similar story to the sorts of story, the sorts of stories that, that all three of us hear quite commonly um, of someone coming to faith when they have recognized in the glow in, in the local and parochial sense um civilizational breakdown right um 
but it's just it's backbiting in the office or in the staff room or in the student union and then they get invited to a, a church weekend away or something and they discover christian community and they see the fruits of christian community up close and personal at the local level and that's certainly not enough to convert them but it does make them think to themselves well i i, I would like to keep on pulling at this thread and perhaps i will keep coming back to church sunday by sunday and learn a little more as ion kind of gets to and I think we're, we're very used to people telling that kind of story on that local level and, and is Ion's story in a, in a sense, a kind of a global civilizational kind of looking at the fruits more historically. Um, and, and, and it, and it is not divorced from the personal in, in her case. The, one, one other thing I, I would just say is that it depends what context you're in, whether claiming Christian faith is a power grab or not. And I would say in the UK, um, you would be giving up a lot of cultural cachet in order to claim Christianity. Um, in the US, that might be a different case. And so I, I mm. think, yeah, different, different contexts would mean that it would be a bit of an ego death for quite a few UK, you know, more, more prominent intellectuals to claim mm. Christianity than it would be in different contexts. Well, one of the first things that happened upon the publication of that viral article by Ayan Hirsi Ali, Why I Am Now a Christian, was people, both atheists and some Christians, critiquing this um, because it primarily dealt with political, cultural concerns and, and appeared to, to say relatively little about a kind of, kind of a personal, spiritual sort of uh, transformation. Now, she has said a bit more about that, and we'll come to that. Um, but, but I thought it worth perhaps, you know, bringing in a couple of voices. Um, these will also be familiar to listeners. Um, the first is Alex O'Connor, who is often known as Cosmic Skeptic Online, who's been on the, the podcast uh, in the past. Um, here's, here's just a little bit of a video of him uh, raising his concerns around this quote-unquote conversion of Ayan Hirsi Ali. Ayan writes that atheism failed to answer what is the meaning and purpose of life. But it sounds more like she's decided that it did answer the question, just that it answered it with a resounding nothing. And, unable to accept this, she felt attracted to Christianity. Immediately following this, Ayan writes that where atheism promised of an age of reason and intelligent humanism, it actually left a void to be filled by a jumble of irrational and quasi-religious dogma involving modern cults engaging in virtue-signalling theatre. She then writes, In this nihilistic vacuum, the challenge before us becomes civilizational. We can't withstand China, Russia and Iran if we can't explain to our populations why it matters that we do. We can't fight woke ideology if we can't defend the civilization that it is determined to destroy. And we can't counter Islamism with purely secular tools. To win the hearts and minds of Muslims here in the West, we have to offer something more than videos on TikTok. So, notice this. Ayan wrote that it would not be truthful to attribute her embrace of Christianity solely to the realization that atheism can't fortify us against our menacing foes. There's more. Atheism also can't tell us what the meaning of life is. She then says that because of this nihilism, we can't withstand China, Russia, and Iran. So, in attempting to offer a reason for adopting Christianity other than fortifying us against our foes, she has immediately circled right back around to fortifying us against our foes. That's all this is about. Is it really that untruthful to say that her conversion was solely due to this consideration? And this is what seems to have kindled such a critical reaction from some commentators. 
can a conversion to Christianity really be so insensitive to the truth claims of Christianity? Is it even possible to simply adopt a theological worldview just because you prefer its ethical values in the geopolitical landscape? So that was Alex O'Connor. Again, I'll link to the full video if you want to hear more. But Alex was one among many, many voices immediately in the aftermath of that article saying similar things. This feels like just, you know, another form of essentially right wing cultural Christianity being used. You know, uh, it's just that Ian's decided to say she's become a Christian. Um, uh, Elizabeth, I, I mean, I know you do have a concern about this, right, as you just expressed, you know, that that there is a danger that Christianity kind of gets adopted as a sort of political tool effectively. Um, so I, I guess you can understand where, where commentators like Alex are coming from in his concerns about whether this really represents a genuine conversion. Yes. I mean, one thing I'd like to say that I should have said at the top of the podcast is I think we need to be really careful dissecting other people's journeys. <laughs> I almost <laughs> said no when you said, will you come and talk about this? Cause I was like, someone has just made an incredibly vulnerable and important mm step in their life and then they are surrounded by a swirl of discourse and uh, other people thinking they know what's going on in their heart and mind and kind of what i want for her is wise people who will not try and make capital out of it and will pastor her and walk with her and tell no one that they're doing so and report it to nobody and not try and make her the symbol for their mission like we are all tempted to do right yeah including me. Um, so that's my kind of health warning for anything we're trying to say about someone else's life that we don't understand. My, my, my kind of trajectory as I, as, I, as I sort of made myself go look at this was definitely worried reading the unheard piece, not least because of the headline, and that is often not the author's. I, I, my, my understanding of Jesus is not someone who rides in with tanks to destroy a civilizational enemy that was what was expected and that was why he was so confusing <laughs> to people <laughs> that this messiah would come as an outcast from the lowest lowest status that he would change the world from the bottom up not through a process of civilizational war through through critical yeast through slow loving changing inviting prince of peace culture transformation and so when i read someone saying i've become a christian because we need to win a, the war of civilizations i did go oh interesting but when you listen to her being as vulnerable as it is maybe possible for her to be given her formation and, the, and her position and the people that she's been spending the last 30 years with she says these very tender things i was in despair I found it almost intolerable to live without the meaning of life. And now I'm going to church and I'm learning what I can. And part of me wonders if I don't think, I don't think she's being intellectually dishonest by talking about the civilizational reasons, but that there may be easier to talk about. We have language for those things. Mm. And in the circles that she's moved, that might be a more respectable, respectable, respectable reason than I had a homeless heart. Mm. And so I went looking for the love of God. And I don't know if I found it yet, but I'm hopeful. Hmm. Glenn, I, I guess you, you've you sort of, I know, done some brilliant video responses, which I will again direct people to concerning both, you know, these statements that Ian Hersiali has made and the art conference. Um, one of the things I was interested in was was your 
kind of in the, in the same way that, that Elizabeth has just said that we shouldn't try to analyze you know someone's inner motives too much because well we all come to faith in the end with mixed motives don't we yeah completely nobody comes to faith for the right reason like like i didn't come to faith for the right reasons and and everybody i meet who winds up in church i had lunch with a guy yesterday it was a student lunch and it was turkey with all the trimmings and he didn't show up in church beforehand he showed up for the the 1 p.m sort of lunch and you know why was he there he was he was there for lunch that was his first time ever in a church but guess what he came along that night and he's heard the gospel and he's been absolutely blown away by it and he's just emblematic of the way everybody shows up in church everybody shows up in church because they've just lost their job or their marriage has fallen apart or their daughter has an eating disorder or and and they they are at the end of their rope and they've tried everything else and it hasn't really worked. And is it is it possible to view Ion's kind of statements as a geopolitical version of that? Is it also possible to view um, when she is diagnosing the spiritual root causes of geopolitical conflict? Um, I think someone like an Alex O'Connor or, or a Stephen Wolford um, will not perhaps have the spiritual dimension to be able to understand um, that this is not just playing geopolitics, but she actually is able to look at geopolitical actors and say they are being motivated by what they consider to be sacred. And that might be um, a complete mystery to uh, a modern new atheist, um, but it is not a mystery to the, the actual actors that we're talking about. And is this just is this a version of the 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 sorts of stories that I hear constantly from modern adult converts where they just say, I've tried everything else. It hasn't really worked. There is a God shaped hole in my life. I'm giving church a shot and we'll see. Now, would I baptize someone off the back of that confession? No, I would not. And, you know, if this is a baptismal declaration, then it is lacking because in the baptismal declarations, you know, we, we turn from Satan. We don't turn from wokery, right? <laughs> like there's, there's, um, there are some much more theologically robust statements that, that are required, you know, for, for someone to go under the water and, and be declared a disciple of Jesus Christ. But I'm so hopeful for somebody who puts together the global issues and the existential issues and they come to church. And what I, I loved about her article is that she said, I, I learn a little more in church Sunday by Sunday, which is very different from her saying, ah, I need to come in and teach the church how it needs to stand up against Islamism and wokery, right? She, she's not coming in to teach, at least, you know, not as she's described it. She's coming in to learn a little more each Sunday. So I'm, I'm very hopeful. I don't think we should, you know, A, declare the journey over or B, celebrate because, you know, we've notched one more up for Team Jesus. Um, but I see a precious soul made in God's image who in a very dark time has opened herself up and, and found something in the scriptures and found something in the Jesus movements that, that is making a real difference in her life. So I, for that, I rejoice. Can I um, come back, Justin, do you mind? Mm. I think there's, there's so much that, that, that Glenn and I would agree on, but I, I don't think you can say that, you know, she's just making a larger geopolitical version of my life is falling apart so i'm going to church as soon as you invoke states you are in a different place and i don't think we can ignore the history of when nations thinking themselves as christian nations representative of christ defenders of the faith have 
harmed the gospel and harmed innocent people. And the center of the church is increasingly the global south. You know, China is full of Christians. <laughs> this, this, this story, which is we, Europe and America, bear the mark of Jesus and the other world is the enemy, feels to me there are very good versions of that argument about our heritage. And there are a lot of terrible ones that I think do not teach us to love our neighbor and do not teach us to decenter ourselves and do not teach us to resist the tribalism and the polarization and the self-love that I think is the biggest temptation of our times. And I don't think she's trying to do that, but my fear is that the way her journey has been framed could be used in that story in ways that could divide us and 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 harm people made in the image of God. Mm. I, I just think geopolitics, we need to remember, comes with bombs and so needs to be treated incredibly carefully. Do you want to respond yeah. to that quickly, Glenn? Yeah, I, I think... Uh, yeah, if this is just ammunition in the culture war, then uh, may it perish, um, please. But I, I am hopeful that, you know, she's saying, okay, we've got immigrants to the West from Muslim backgrounds, and we have the opportunity to teach them something of Christianity, which is not like TikTok videos, she says, are not going to, um, are not going to like win the hearts and minds of people. Um, we we need a spiritual route to be able to teach people. So she is wanting to share something of the of the spiritual roots with other people. Um, but you're you're absolutely right. If the, if this is just an argument that West is best, then um, that's that's anathema to me, and uh, I, I would want no part of it. And sometimes the the Tom Holland thesis can be seen as ammunition in the culture wars. I think that would be to completely misuse it. Because I think what the Tom Holland thesis is actually saying is the culture war is explained by spiritual things that that no political settlement can ever satisfy. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. Well, let, let's go to one more sort of critique. Um, there were lots to choose from, but this is Stephen Woodford. And um, he goes online very often as Rationality Rules. He, again, has featured in a previous episode of this podcast. Um, this was essentially Stephen saying, well, why did you have to claim to suddenly be a Christian, Ayan? Weren't there other options on offer? Here we go. Look, if Ali really wants solidarity and shared values, are there not better ways of achieving this? Wouldn't it be more inclusive and sensible to promote, say, civic national values, freedom, equality and democratic government, to name just a few? Or perhaps, why not just be a humanist? Or, you know, champion enlightenment values. Enlightenment values, like religions, transcend nations. They unite people across the globe who don't even share a language. They are much like religion in this sense. So I can see you chuckling away at that, Glenn. <laughs> I'll, I'll go to you first. Um, because I, I did feel like um, Stephen's critique here, it was rather like um, a tweet sent out immediately in the aftermath of Ian's article by Stephen Pinker, who, who said, the brave and brilliant Ayan Hirsi Ali is one of my heroes, but I disagree with her here. The alternative to theistic morality is not atheism, but humanism, the use of reason to enhance human flourishing. And, you know, Stephen says some pretty similar things in that critique. Glenn, go ahead. As though she's never tried that. As, as, as though that's, that's not like the middle section of her story. Like, like 
Act one, Islamism. Act two, secular humanism. Act three, Christianity. Like, like she spent a long time kind of looking for this, this kind of stuff. And a lot of her article and a lot of her interviews are completely about how um, to identify the enlightenment as the root is to misidentify the root. That is not the root. That is one distorted fruit of one part of one tree. Um, the root needs to go a lot, a lot deeper and, and back to Christianity. And the the idea that um, pure rationality is the the root of this international rights based order is just a nonsense. But I think one thing that this moment shows I, I have no idea uh, about Ion's Christianity, and I have no idea whether there is a turn towards Christianity in the West at the moment. But I think this moment does show the failure of the new atheism. Um, the failure of a worldview that says rationality rules, because rationality clearly does not rule, either from a spiritual religious you know, standpoint or even just from an evolutionary standpoint. Like, like very obviously, religion is a human universal and, and must be adaptive and must have great utility to the human species. And very clearly, our minds have not evolved purely to have rationality ruling <laughs> as grand emperor over the human person. Um, evolutionary psychology would teach you that rationality does not rule. Our minds are not rational. Our minds are, are righteous, as moral philosopher and moral psychologist um, Jonathan Haidt would, would, would sort of say. And so this, this idea that all we need is this transnational enlightenment value thing, it's, it's not transnational. And surely the 9-11 wars, you know, the, the wars in the wake of 9-11 kind of proved that. <laughs> Um, what is natural and obvious and universal and, and what we consider to be inevitable human values are very particular, contingent Western values that have a, a, a history to them and an incredibly Christianized history to them. And Ion understands this, and I don't think Alex and Stephen do understand this. And, and therefore, I, I, I think she is following the evidence where it leads. And I, I think she is baffling people like, like Stephen and Alex, mm. um, which to me shows the, the limitations of the new atheism. Elizabeth, your thoughts on that way of seeing things, you know, Pinker saying, come on, you, you've got humanism for all the things that you think. I mean, uh, what, what, what is someone like Pinker or Stephen Woodford missing? Because obviously, it, as Glenn said, for Ayan, she tried that and it didn't work, presumably. Why do they think she's, you know, she's just sort of gone off on a crazy tangent here? Mm. I was um, on a program recently with Daniel Dennett, and this was one of the things I was uh, trying to kind of tease out in my conversation with him. Honestly, I think what they're missing is at least half of what it means to be a human being, more than half. I think that you can have aspirational values, which almost all of us would uh, align with, but without embodiment, without community, without ritual, without what the Jesuits would call formation, it is almost impossible to live by them. And leaving God out of the equation briefly, I don't want to <laughs> entirely, but even if you are someone like the critics that we've heard, you can want to, us to embody enlightenment values and surely be able to see how almost impossible that is on our own using air quotes, pure reason, how much to grow in our ability to make good decisions, to grow in wisdom, to really treat other people as if they are equal. I mean, who does that? 
<laughs> to, 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 to really make the decisions that are for the good of other people as well as us, even just our spouses, <laughs> even just our friends, that, the, the, that without a rigorous moral and spiritual path, those things are just hot air, honestly. And that is what I think that Ian is, uh, is, is, is seeing that she's not, she, I think she's not sure whether what mm. she thinks about Jesus, what she thinks about God, but she knows she needs more than just mm. like a value statement on a corporate wall. Yeah. Let's go to a final clip. This is uh, the, the clip I've been promising of Ian sharing a little bit more of her own personal journey. And again, this was from the interview with Unheard. Uh, I will link, of course, to the full conversation. A lot of people were also questioning what appeared to be a more of a sort of practical way of making your faith decisions. That was very discussed. I mean, the article has been read many hundreds of thousands of times already since Friday, and no, no doubt will continue to be. But I did notice that as a common response, which is, it, it felt like a, a justification or, or a discussion of Christianity as a mechanism to resist cultural collapse almost mm -hmm. um, and there was not so much of a personal journey not so much about your own faith um, is there anything that you would expand on that um it's so the reason why i care first of all you have you know a limit on the number of words that you want to publish yeah <laughs> <laughs> um and and I'm expanding this into a book, but yes, there's a very personal story. I don't know to what extent um, it's useful, but on a on a very personal level, I went through a period of crisis, um, very personal crisis of fear, anxiety, depression. I went to the best therapists. Money can pay. I think they gave me an explanation of some of the things that I was struggling with, but I continued to have this um, big spiritual hole or need, as you call it. Um, I tried to self-medicate. I tried to sedate myself. Um, I drank enough alcohol you could use to sterilize a hospital. <laughs> it would not, uh, nothing helped. Um, I continued to read, you know, books on psychiatry in the brain and none of that helped. All of that explained a small piece of the puzzle, but there was still something that I was missing. Um, and then I think it was one um, therapist who said to me early this year, I think I am, you're spiritually bankrupt. And... At that point, I was in a place um, where I had sort of given up hope. I was in this place of darkness, and I thought, well, what the hell? Uh, I'm going to open myself to that and see, see, you know, ask her, what are you talking about? Mm. And we started talking about faith and a belief in God, and I explained to her that the God I grew up with was a horror show. Um, he created you to punish you and frightened you and, you know, as a girl and as a woman, you're just a piece of trash. And mm. so I said to her, I explained to her why I didn't believe in God more than that, why I actually hated God. And then she asked me to design my own God and she said, if you had 
the power to, you know, attribute a higher power. If, if you had the power to make your own God, what would you do? And as I was going on, I thought, yeah, right. Uh, that's actually a description of Jesus Christ and Christianity at its best. And so instead of inventing yet another new God, <laughs> um, I started diving into um, in, into that story. Um, and so far, um, you know, my husband and I go, went about both of us saying we're atheists and now it's, I like this story, I exploit and um, the more I look at it, the more I don't want to say I'm fulfilled, but I feel I no longer have this need, this this void I have to say, and I mm. feel like I'm I'm going somewhere. Elizabeth, be interested in your thoughts on what Ayan had to say about that personal journey. Yeah, I just have a little cry here. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, the power of testimony, right? Mm. Like that. I, it was so interesting to me how she framed that. And it, 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 it speaks so much to that formation as a new atheist. You know, it's personal, so therefore I don't know if it will be useful. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it. All of this, I think, connects so interestingly with the Ian McGilchrist stuff about brain hemispheres. You know, the instinct to make things abstract and universal is really useful in some cases and 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 trips us up so much because the most personal, the most particular is the most universal. And the phrase that's often used about the incarnation is the scandal of particularity. And, you know, you can dress it up however you like and I think this, talking about the article and the civilizational stuff is all interesting but that is them that felt like the most honest thing right I was in despair and now I'm not hmm. who doesn't want that yeah hmm. Glenn and and Jesus Christ is the God I can believe in and very often if I'm talking to an, an atheist and especially of the the new atheist breed i will kind of say which god don't you believe in and you know i got that line from tom wright who you know would use it as chaplain of, of worcester college at oxford he would say to a whole bunch of 19 and 20 year olds which god don't you believe in and they'd stare at their shoes and not really know how to answer and they'd end up describing some distant monster and he would say well i'm, I'm an atheist as regards that god too can i tell you about jesus can I tell you about the God who is revealed by Jesus and the power of Jesus to convert people, the power of Jesus when he is lifted up, he will draw all people to himself, he says in John chapter 12. And and I think that's so hope giving to, to just regular Christians that just as we present Jesus it doesn't have to be clever, but there is an attractiveness to Christ at the existential level. And I think that frames what Ion meant at arc when she said you know we don't have to get into the older debates about did god build the world in six days sort of thing and people thought to themselves is she therefore abandoning the idea of truth and i don't think she's abandoning the idea of truth i think she's just recognizing that it's related to those two other transcendentals of beauty and goodness and 
she speaks much about you know the goodness and the fruit of christian civilization at least but there's also that that beauty element as well could you could you imagine a greater god that than jesus who would come and stoop and serve and suffer and bleed and die for the world could you imagine a greater god and she's saying nope can't I, I can't top jesus and as soon as you start to say i can't top jesus you're basically saying jesus is lord and then bad luck you're a christian that's that's kind of the that's kind of the way it happens so yeah it's lovely to see yeah yeah it's, it's been really interesting thank you both for your thoughts and reflections on aon hersey alley i'm sure we will continue to follow her journey with interest um as i say um we'd be delighted to have a conversation with her in person um uh, Glenn has uh, already made some excellent video responses, um, which we will link to from today's show. Uh, Elizabeth has fascinating conversations all the time on the sacred with people on not dissimilar journeys very often. Um, and uh, you can find more from her as well with the links on today's show. Um, uh, this show is airing around Christmas and New Year. So um, I hope that anyone listening or watching has a wonderful Christmas and a happy new year. And that includes you, Glenn and Elizabeth. Thank you so much for being my guest today. You too, Justin. Happy Christmas. Happy Christmas indeed. Uh, thank you for listening to today's show, The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God. Don't forget, this podcast is also a book available at my website, justinbriley.com. You can even get a signed copy there. Coming up next time on the show, more surprising conversions. The curious case of Paul Kingsnorth and Martin Shaw. Why are poets and storytellers being drawn to Christ? And just a final reminder, you can listen to next week's show right now when you become a supporter of the Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God podcast. Just click the link with today's show and you'll get access to the early release podcast episodes plus more bonus content. For now, thanks for being with us. We'll see you next time.